0: Hi, and welcome back to Crystal Radio, the podcast of the Canadian Review of Sociology. I'm Karen Stanbridge, and in this episode, we will hear from three sociologists whose work appears in the May 2020 issue of the journal. Kevin Schaefer is here to talk about his research on mental health and fatherhood. Kathleen Hillier will answer the question, will they stay or will they go? as it pertains to youth in Canada's Provincial North. And Isabel Stan will tell us about process-oriented sociology and give us an overview of the special section on process-oriented analysis that appears in the May 2020 issue of the journal. So, lots of ground to cover today. Let's begin. First up, we have Dr. Kevin Schaefer.
1: Sure. Uh, I'm an associate professor of sociology at Brigham Young University in Utah, and also an adjunct associate professor of health and society at McMaster University.
0: Dr. Schaefer studies fatherhood in the US and Canada. He's interested in how structural factors and the individual characteristics of fathers affect how involved they are with their kids. In their article, Depressive Symptoms and Father Involvement in Canada, Evidence from a National Study, Dr. Schaefer and his co-author, Andrew Renick, look at how the mental health of fathers in Canada shapes their interactions with their children. Dr. Schaefer explains how he came to this research.
1: It builds off of of research that um, I've done in the United States which shows that there is a negative relationship between depressive symptoms or psychological well-being and how involved dads are with their kids. And involvement is measured in all sorts of ways. So we think about how warm they are towards their kids, how involved they are as a as a co-parent, how much are they engaging in in caregiving, how are they disciplining their children. Etc. So it's a pretty broad range of parenting behaviors. And we came across this question in Canada for two reasons. Uh, one is, uh, as a Canadian, I'm interested in the Canadian context. Um, and then second, um, the consideration of how it might vary uh, across contexts is something that's been um, a question that's been on my mind uh, for some time. The other piece of it is um, that in talking with individuals in Canada, um, both academics and people um, on the ground uh, trying to help families, it was pretty clear that there was just no national level research in Canada on the question of how does psychological well-being in fathers actually affect how dads parent their kids.
0: One of the challenges that faced Schaefer and Rennick in their research is the dearth of data on Canadian fathers.
1: So one problem is, is that um, Statistics Canada, which is a, uh, a wonderful national statistical agency, um, doesn't actually collect data specifically on fathers. So that lack of data means that we have to sort of collect our own data. Um, and as a result, uh, we uh, partnered with, a, with an organization um, that maintains large panels of of Canadians. Um, in this case, it's uh, one and a half million Canadians. And um, we drew a subsample from that group of, of men who um, had at least one child um, under the age of 18 and who were over uh, 18 themselves. And it's a diverse range of, of different kinds of fathers. So not exclusively residential fathers, not exclusively biological fathers, but we wanted to uh, get a large range of, of, of the types of men who parent children.
0: Assessing depressive symptoms among Canadian fathers was fairly straightforward, given the numbers of robust measures already out there.
1: In this case, we use a uh, standardized uh, measure uh, that comes from the Centers for Epidemiological Studies. So uh, very commonly used, it, it consists of 20 um, different symptoms, um, and and individuals are asked to uh, indicate how often in the past month they've felt um, those symptoms, and that's important because that's uh, that time horizon is one that's used um, by psychologists and psychiatrists in the in diagnosing depression. Um, as well. So it, it sort of lines up a little bit with um, diagnosis. We don't want to go so far as to say it is diagnostic, and, and there are all sorts of issues with, with uh, the diagnosis of depression just generally. So, uh, but we, we do capture a broad range of symptoms um, and scale them together um, in a way that gives us an understanding of, of how depressed someone is from um, not at all to extremely.
0: The real focus of Schaefer and Rennick's research, however, is on father involvement, a much more difficult concept to operationalize. How did they do it?
1: Um, we don't have really good standardized measures of um, father involvement. There really aren't scales out there that that really um, address those measures and, and how to capture how men parent. So as a result, we um, measure a lot of different behaviors and they sort of fall into two camps. One is what we call instrumental behaviors. Instrumental behaviors are those things that um, are really focused on providing for the child's uh, needs, right? So caregiving, for example, is an instrumental behavior. And then emotional behaviors. So those are things like showing your child warmth being loving towards your child as well. So we want to capture both of those aspects. And so the way that we did this is we um, looked at measures in all kinds of other data sets of how father involvement was captured. And we put them all in our data and boiled them down to the ones that um, are most effectively measure father involvement. So those things that that hang together the best.
0: All told, Schaefer and Rennick compiled data on over 2,000 fathers from across Canada. Some of their results were expected, but there were unexpected outcomes too.
1: Yeah, so um, perhaps um, not surprisingly, um, depressive symptoms are, uh, are negatively associated with father involvement. So fathers who exhibit more depressive symptoms are less warm towards their kids, um, they provide less emotional support towards their children, and they engage in things like harsh discipline. And that that's like uh, spanking or or screaming at your children um, far more. I think the thing that is most surprising, I think the thing that's most interesting in the Canadian context versus what has been found in other contexts like the United States and the United Kingdom, is that there was not a relationship between... Depressive symptoms and paternal engagement with caregiving, um, those things that we might traditionally think of as feminine or maternal behaviors. And that is the case um, in the US and UK. In other words, um, in the US and UK, dads who exhibit high levels of depressive symptoms withdraw from caregiving. Um, That wasn't the case in our data. And I think that suggests um, that there's something different. In the Canadian context and that mental health manifests itself according to um, the kinds of uh, social norms that exist within a society. So if there's a higher expectation that dads will be involved in caregiving um, in the Canadian context, then they may be less likely, even though they are feeling depressed, to withdraw from those caregiving behaviors. Um, And so we think it's a pretty um, unique and interesting pattern that's definitely um, raises more questions about how this might vary um, in other places as well.
0: The absence of regional differences is a really interesting outcome. It suggests that there's something happening at the national level that may be shaping fathering behaviors in Canada.
1: We were a little bit surprised that we didn't find differences by region. Um, because there is some pretty decent evidence that there is some variability across region. Obviously, some aspects of Canada, like the Prairie Provinces, are far more rural and they might um, behave in ways that are different than more urban uh, places in Canada. Um, I will say that we've also um, looked at this in, in data for a forthcoming book, that compares fathering in Canada versus the United States and those cross-national differences um, hold as well. So um, it does appear to be more of a, a broad phenomenon in Canada versus a phenomenon that's that's regional.
0: So what would the authors like us to take away from their analysis?
1: Yeah, so I mean, you think, I think a couple of things. One um, is really the significance and the importance of understanding phenomenon within a particular context, um, and not just making broad assumptions that things look the same in places that look a lot like each other. The second takeaway is, I think, um, really an understanding of uh, the importance of of fathers and the importance of father involvement for um, the well-being of of not only children, but also um, families as a whole. And I think this has been a really understudied phenomenon. I think it's also one that's been particularly understudied by sociologists. Um, but I think sociologists have a particular set of skills and a particular viewpoint that I think is beneficial because of the numerous structural barriers that exist towards positive father involvement. So those are the two biggest takeaways that I hope people uh, capture out of this, out of this paper. And I also hope that it's beneficial to a broad audience, not just simply academics, but that it's broadly apic- applicable to people who are are working with and are who are interested in how to get dads more involved and more engaged in the lives of their kids.
0: You can read and find details on the complete study in the article: depressive symptoms and Father Involvement in Canada, Evidence from a National Study, by Kevin Schaefer and Andrew Rennick in the May 2020 issue of the Canadian Review of Sociology. And thanks to Dr. Schaefer for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure.
0: Our next guest is Kathleen Hillier. I'm
2: a postdoctoral fellow at Nipissing University, and I work with doc- Dr. David Zarifa. He's a Canada Research Chair, and he focuses on life course transitions in northern and rural communities.
0: Dr. Hillier and her colleagues Yujiro Sano, David Zarifa, and Michael Han have an article in the May 2020 issue of the Canadian Review of Sociology entitled "Will They Stay or Will They Go." examining the brain drain in Canada's provincial north. The term brain drain is used by all sorts of groups for all sorts of reasons. Dr. Hillier clarifies her team's usage.
2: Yes, so uh, we define brain drain as the loss of educated youth or people in general, educated people from an area. So um, we hear a lot about brain drain in terms of, you know, Canadians moving to the U.S., for jobs, um, but it also happens between provinces, and in our case, we're looking at north to south brain
0: drain. The migration of educated people from less populated to more populated areas of Canada has been observed and studied by sociologists for some time, but as Dr. Hillier explains, it's important to examine brain drain from northern communities specifically
2: there are similarities between rural areas and northern areas um, one one of them is the the sparse population that often happens but there are differences as well so um, one of the things that we present in the paper is that it's important to look at northern communities um, because they have um, different infrastructures in terms of um, where a lot of the, their employment lies so uh, in terms of like natural resources in northern communities that makes a big difference in the sort of economic makeup of the areas Um, but also northern rural communities they are even more sparse and often further from those urban centers than we would see in urban communities in the south so those are um, some reasons why we think it's important the other reason we think it's important is because um, northern rural communities tend to have larger indigenous populations.
0: Dr. Hillier and her colleagues were guided by three research questions.
2: Um, so we were interested first in finding out uh, what is the overall magnitude. So um, what percentage of people, are, are youth rather, are um, actually out migrating from their northern areas. And then um, we wanted to find out more about the characteristics of youth who decide to leave. So um, what are some of the predictors of those who decide to leave? And in particular, our third research question is um, how, how is this leaving influenced by parental socioeconomic background and also youth's own skills and abilities?
0: Dr. Hillier describes how and why she and her team chose the data on which they base their study. By the way, the acronym PISA, or P-I-S-A, stands for the Program for International Student Assessment that measures the math, science, and reading performance of 15-year-olds around the world every three years. Okay,
2: so actually we used We use the Youth in Transition Survey from Statistics Canada, and um, we use their Cohort A group because that's where we got all the information about parents. Um, So Cohort A had uh, parent survey data also included. Um, And the the really neat thing about the YITS is it's linked to PISA scores so uh, we were able because one of our research questions is looking at youth skills and abilities we were able to access youths reading uh, their their pisa reading scores and um, there's newly new links between yitz and tax filer information and that's what uh, enabled us to uh, consider time in our analysis and we were really interested, we used survival analysis because in survival analysis, time, as you mentioned, is a, is a large factor that we were considering there. So um, we were looking at the risk of something happening. So in our case, we were looking at the risk of migrating south. Um, and be- these, these links that Statistics Canada offers were a large part of what enabled us to do what we were able to do there.
0: Next, Dr. Hillier delineates their dependent and independent variables. Just a heads up, there's a distortion in the sound here. Dr. Hillier is saying that the study examined results for the period 2002 to 2015.
2: Um, So our dependent variable was that risk. So the risk associated with migrating out of a northern area um, and we were looking between the years of 2002 to which is what the data enabled us to do. Um, so that's our that's our dependent variable. So at what point are people more likely to migrate out of an area? And then our independent variables uh, we were uh, because of our research questions we were interested in, youth's own academic backgrounds so their pisa reading scores at age 15 and also the highest level of education that uh, that they themselves completed and then we have um, two parent variables parents highest level of education and also the logged parental income when youth were 15 years old and then we also added in other factors such as visible minority status, country of birth, indigenous status, uh, province of residence, and family structure at age 15, and also sex, uh, urban or rural residents, marital status, um, income of the uh, respondents themselves, and their type of occupation.
0: So what factors did Dr. Hillier and her team find were associated with youths migrating south from Northern communities?
2: Uh, So first of all, yes, there is a brain drain happening. Just to answer that question, we found that in terms of overall magnitude, 54% of youth left Northern Canada to migrate to Southern Canada between the ages of 17 and 30. Um, and then our other interest was looking at those characteristics and also uh, parental background. So um, first, we uh, looked at youth's own skills and abilities. And yes, those who have a university education or more uh, were the most likely to migrate from north to south, and then followed by those with a college or grade education. Uh, the least likely to migrate were those with high school education or less. Also, those with higher PISA reading scores were more likely to migrate. Um, but when we entered in parents' university education and their income, the uh, education variables that we initially looked at with the youth were partially attenuated. Um, so, and that was with parents. Uh, parents' education had the most effect. Income um, wasn't significant. Um, Those in uh, distribution employment, so we defined that as retail, real estate, food services, and also those in white collar industries were more likely, um, so white collar would be professional management type occupations, they were more likely to migrate from north to south. And um, Interestingly, respondents from rural areas were less likely to move south.
0: Some expected results, perhaps, but some surprising ones as well. Income, for example, was not a strong push factor.
2: Yeah, um, so that was an interesting finding because in some of the rural to urban research, income was a strong predictor, and we did not find it to be so um, in our analysis uh, so for us, that speaks more to um, our theoretical framework. So when we were talking about Bourdieu's habitus and the type of um, you know, environment that children grow up in in terms of their thoughts about future education, education matters more than income in these types of uh, decision-making processes in terms of uh, seeking future education, seeking post-secondary education, or the type of occupation that youth might pursue. So for us, um, that income not coming out as having a significant effect um, suggested that those economic costs of relocating or moving from North to South were not as influential as parents own income and maybe perhaps the type of environments that youth grow up in.
0: This research has clear policy implications as Dr. Hillier explains.
2: Um, So I think one thing that we point out really well in our paper is the role that schools and communities can play in those um, those point those decision making points Um, so when they're at that point where they're maybe making some decisions about post-secondary education or occupational decision making uh, perhaps northern communities and schools can make more of a concerted effort to have these conversations Uh, in particular have these conversations about what is available in the north and one of the things that we do suggest is for post-secondary schools is perhaps um, those northern schools could um, increase their course offerings or their specializations um, because some of the reasons for youth leaving could be to go to a university that has a specific field that they're interested in. Um, Also to really look at the occupational opportunities in the north and whether they require uh, a degree or not because because we're focusing on brain drain in this article um, we make we make these suggestions so that these northern communities can keep these educated youth in the areas to make their communities stronger um, and so one thing would be those occupational opportunities if they're there make them more known if they're not there how could um, the the cities, these urban centers, and even the rural areas, how can they increase these opportunities?
0: Find out more about Dr. Hillier's research and the results of the study in the article, Will They Stay or Will They Go? Examining the Brain Drain in Canada's Provincial North in the May 2020 issue of the Canadian Review of Sociology. From time to time, the Canadian Review of Sociology hosts special and thematic sections on particular fields of the discipline. One of these special sections appears in the May 2020 issue. This one is dedicated to process-oriented analysis. I spoke recently to one of the editors of the section.
3: My name is Isabel Stamm, and I'm head of a research group at the Technical University in Berlin. My primary research interests are entrepreneurship, the relationship of groups and organizations, and capitalist dynamics.
0: Dr. Stamm, along with fellow editors Andreas Schmitz, Maria Norkis, and Nina Bauer, provide the introduction to the section, which features three articles on process-oriented analysis. I asked Dr. Stamm what exactly constitutes process-oriented analysis.
3: Basically, any analysis of social phenomena that embrace a process perspective fall under the umbrella term process-oriented analysis. In general, social theory really stresses the importance of thinking in categories of temporal change. Just think of some basic concepts such as modernization, socialization, or even social conflict. One of the strengths of contemporary sociology is that it has many different analytical tools at its disposal for tackling historicity, change, and eventually temporality. But, and this is a big but, the emphasis on process on a theoretical level is only scarcely translated into a reflection of its methodological and methodological implications. Key questions arising are, what do social scientists mean by process in terms of space, time, and levels of analysis? And how can social scientists empirically grasp social processes? And how can um, we start and define start and end points of processes and what methods are adequate to model and analyze these processes.
0: In other words, how do you measure a moving target? This is why sociologists who adopt a process-oriented perspective in their work need to consider their methods carefully.
3: A discussion of methodological issues of a process orientation in sociology is essential to improve um, empirical social research on social change processes. Knowledge on such change processes, um, think of globalization or climate change or the ongoing pandemic are in high demand. And we need to reflect upon the ways we can set up methodological designs that are able to adequately depict and analyze such change processes. In addition, we're in a world with an increased use of new type of big data and this calls for a sensitivity towards the processes of data production. Our everyday social practices are more and more intertwined with automated methods of data collecting and thus creating a recursive relationship between data protection and social practices. A methodological debate about process analysis is thus helpful to decode not only ongoing societal change, but also advances methods adequate to deal with digital process generated data.
0: The three articles featured in the special section on process-oriented analysis all contribute to the discussion around process-oriented methodologies in different ways.
3: So the, the three articles included um, all set different starting points for a methodological discussion of process-oriented analysis. Tito Brents engages um, in a methodological reflection on process produced data, as well as a reflective perspective on contemporary processes in digitalization. The second article, um, authored by Janis Hergesell, Nina Bauer and Lili Braunisch, reflect upon implications of a process perspective on sampling strategies. This includes aspects of duration and temporal patterns over cases, as well as time frames and um, periodization. And finally, Admiral Chateau Brown um, presents um, the established tradition of agent based modeling as a way to model processes between entities in a systematic and controlled environment.
0: What this special section brings home is that, to some extent, all sociologists are process-oriented scholars, whether we think of ourselves that way or not, which is why the research that appears here is pertinent to all of us, as Dr. Stamm explains.
3: Well, as I already indicated, this theme section aims at initiating a debate about methodological underpinnings of process-oriented analysis. Each of the three articles in this section sets a starting point to think through process generated data, process oriented sampling strategies or methods adequate to model processes. The takeaway for the reader of this special section is thus a sensitivity towards methodological issues implied in a process perspective that will need to be addressed in their own empirical designs, hence the special issue equips Um, social researchers with important reflection points and guidelines for their own empirical work.
0: Find and read the articles featured in the thematic section on process-oriented analysis in the May 2020 issue of the Canadian Review of Sociology. And that's it for another episode of Crystal Radio, the podcast of the Canadian Review of Sociology. Stay tuned for new episodes featuring the authors of work coming up in the August 2020 issue of The Journal. Thanks for listening. I'm Karen Stanbridge.